Let's uh, continue to worship our great and ever-faithful, awesome God by turning to the New Testament book of Romans. Romans chapter 16. Romans 16, it's on page 894 in your pew Bible if you'd like to avail yourself of that resource. Today we come to the final chapter of this New Testament book that we have been studying for the last 10 months. I remember back on the first Sunday in April as our ladies were finishing their women's conference with a Courtney doctor, uh, there was a final Q&A session before our morning worship service, and I was about to preach on Romans chapter 11. And I found that uh, Courtney had just finished a nine-session study book on the book of Romans that had just been published with Lifeway called In View of God's Mercies, which of course is a phrase taken from Romans 12.1. And since I was getting ready to start chapter 11 that morning, I, I said to Courtney before the service, I said, you know, um, it's been a real enriching study up to this point, but I'm, I'm really looking forward to preaching chapters 12 to 16 as we talk about the practical outworking of the gospel in our lives. And uh, she, she apparently thought that I said chapters 12 to 15 because she said, well, well don't leave off chapter 16. There's a lot of good stuff in there. And uh, I told her, I assure you, I'm going to preach through chapter 16. And I agree, there is a lot of great stuff in here. And here we are just a few months later, now coming to this final chapter of the book of Romans. And I'm so excited to be able to study it with you today. And as I thought about that conversation with Courtney and thought about this final chapter in this New Testament book, I decided to entitle today's sermon, Last But Not Least. And I say that not only in reference to chapter 16 as a whole, but especially to the many, many people that are, Paul actually mentions by name in this chapter. Well over two dozen people, most of whose names we would not recognize. They are not a theological household name like the Apostle Paul or Peter or John or some of the other disciples. But Paul considers these people to be very important. And in thinking about the passage we read moments ago in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul would never say of, of any of these people or, or any fellow believer, I have no need of you. And Paul was a, a pretty big deal, so to speak, in the early church. And yet he shows great affection and appreciation for these people that he lists in chapter 16. The, Paul's greetings to these people make up the bulk of the chapter. A chapter that ends on a note of praise to God. So the subtitle for this sermon could be Greetings to Friends, Glory to God. Greetings to Friends, Glory to God. And my prayer is that as we make our way through this chapter today, that you will be encouraged in the work that you do for the Lord. At times it may seem like our service to the Lord is insignificant compared to a lot of other, what we might consider to be more important people. But I believe the Holy Spirit had Paul include this final chapter in this letter to encourage everyday Christians like us, run-of-the-mill, normal believers, so that we might be encouraged in the service that we render to the Lord and in turn be strengthened 
in our relationships with one another. And that, I believe, really is the transformative truth of this text. Our collaborative service for Christ strengthens our solidarity in Christ. Our collaborative service for Christ strengthens our solidarity in Christ. And we see this principle at work throughout chapter 16 as Paul greets his co-laborers, then cautions them, and then expresses his confidence in God toward them, and then as he concludes on a note of praise with a doxology to the Lord. So let's begin with Paul's co-laborers. This is going to be the biggest point of today's sermon because it makes up the bulk of the chapter. And I'm not going to go over every single name in terms of telling you about each one because quite frankly you wouldn't remember it anyway. So I just want to draw some highlights as we go through the text. But let me go ahead and read Romans 16 verses 1 to 16. Paul writes, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sencria, that you may welcome her in the Lord away worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca, or Priscilla, and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stockies. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord. Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncretus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobos, Hermos and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. And I would just like to thank the Lord for helping me pronounce these names. <laughs> Whew, that part of the sermon's over with. At the end of chapter 15, Paul expresses his intention to come visit the church at Rome on his way to Spain. Indeed, he wants their help uh, in his ministry to that nation by supporting him in that endeavor. But Paul says as he, as he comes to see them, he will come to them with joy and he expects that he will be refreshed by their company. And then he concludes chapter 15 with a benediction. May the God of peace be with you all. Now that right there, Paul's expression to come see them, his anticipation of the joy they will share together, ending in a benediction would have been an appropriate ending to the letter right there. 
Indeed, my guess is, is that as this letter was read to the church at Rome, perhaps they thought Paul actually was ending his letter at that point. But Paul clearly is not done. He writes another whole chapter and gives yet another benediction at the end of the chapter. Why is that? Well, we can only uh, know that the Holy Spirit moved Paul to write this chapter. But as I think of it from a human standpoint, as I imagine Paul sitting there, and in light of everything that he has already shared, as, as as he pronounces this benediction on the church, as he anticipates his upcoming visit with them, certain people start coming to mind. I can imagine that Paul sees the faces of these people that are so precious to him. And he knows that by God's grace, Lord willing, he will see them shortly. But for now, he cannot close his letter without extending some personal greetings. And so he mentions one by name, then another, then another, and then another. And all these people keep coming to Paul's mind and he greets one after another. His affection and his appreciation for these people are readily apparent throughout this entire chapter. And brothers and sisters, that should not be overlooked. Because as we have studied the book of Romans, one thing is clear, Paul was a first-rate theologian. He he was well-grounded in Scripture. By the help of the Holy Spirit, he was able to understand how all of Scripture points to Christ and the good news of salvation that comes through him, not only for Jews, but also for the Gentiles. And Paul has given a masterful exposition of Scripture, showing how Old Testament prophecy is fulfilled in the gospel and person of Jesus Christ. He's he's so well-grounded. He is a knowledgeable man. He is a first-rate theologian. In other words, Paul knows a lot. But you know what we see here in chapter 16? Is that Paul also loves a lot. And that is a rare combination. Would you agree? There are some people that seem to really know a lot about Scripture. But they're really not all that affectionate and caring, it seems. And then there are people who are just gracious, magnanimous, big-hearted people Man, they have such a good heart, but it seems like they really don't know the word very well. And yet Paul was not only a knowledgeable man, he was a loving man. Matthew Henry wrote, What is heaven but knowledge and love made perfect? And so how beautiful it is to see both of these qualities, biblical knowledge and Christ-like love, blended together so beautifully in a single believer. And I believe we see that in the Apostle Paul, and Paul saw a measure of that in the very people to whom he was writing. Paul begins by commending a sister in Christ named Phoebe. He describes her as a servant of the church at Sencria. This was a seaport that was located just five miles from Corinth, and so this may have been a daughter church that was planted by the believers in Corinth. Other commentators think that because the persecution of believers was so intense in the city of Corinth, that perhaps they met outside the city at this seaport that was five miles away, that Sancria was the actual location where they gathered for worship, which that would mean that the church at Sancria actually is the church at Corinth. We can't be certain, but one thing we do know for sure is that there was a faithful sister in Christ who served there, 
and her name was Phoebe. Again, she is described as a servant of the church at Sancria. The word servant translates the Greek word diakonos, which is where we get our word deacon from. Uh, and there's no male or female distinction of this term in the New Testament. So it could be that uh, Phoebe served in an official role as a female deacon, what we might call a deaconess in the church. Or maybe Paul was just using the word servant in a more generic sense, in the sense that every believer is a servant of the Lord and of his church. We, we can't be sure but if I had to guess, I would say that she probably was a deaconess there in the church because this, this seems to have an official description to it, that she is a servant, a diakonos of the church at Sancria. But whether she served in an official capacity as a deacon or an unofficial capacity just as a sister in Christ, one thing is certain, that she served well. Regardless of how she did this. Paul commends her to this church. He tells the congregation to welcome her in the Lord as one who is worthy of honor among God's people. In addition to Phoebe, Paul greets several other women in the church at Rome who were precious co-laborers in ministry. I just want to list them for you quickly with a brief description. In verses 3 to 5, he talks about Prisca or Priscilla, the wife of Aquila. He describes them as fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risked their necks for me. You might recall that Paul met Aquila and Priscilla on his first trip to Corinth. You can read about that back in Acts 18, Paul's missionary journey there. Uh, and the reason that Aquila and Priscilla were there is because Emperor Claudius had kicked the Jews out of Rome. And so they wound up in Corinth, which is where they met Paul. And they were also tent makers like Paul was. So they were able to labor together in that trade. And they also helped Paul plant churches. And that's why Paul not only thanked them, but he says here that the churches of the Gentiles also thank Aquila and Priscilla because they had benefited from their labors. It's interesting that Aquila and Priscilla are mentioned six times in the New Testament. And in four of those times, Priscilla is mentioned first. Um, we don't know exactly the reason, but commentators guess that it's because she might have had the more dominant personality. Or perhaps she was the more active, direct participant in some of the labors with Paul. But whatever the case, Priscilla and her husband Aquila were faithful fellow workers of Paul. And he greets them by name here. In verse 6, he mentions a woman named Mary. Romans 16, 6. Paul says, Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. That's all he says. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. That word, worked hard, translates the Greek word kopiao. It means to labor to the point of weariness or exhaustion. That is to say that Mary wore herself out by serving others in the church. And Paul made a point to greet this hard worker by name. In verse 7, he talks about Junia, along with her husband Andronicus. He, he refers to them as my kinsmen, which may indicate that this couple was actually uh, perhaps biologically related to Paul. Paul also calls them his fellow prisoners 
who are well known to the apostles. He says that they were in Christ before me. And so if we put these pieces together, it would seem that these were perhaps a couple that were, were actual family members of Paul who came to Christ even before he did and who not only like Paul had been saved, but they had also suffered with Paul in prison for the sake of the gospel. In verse 12, he mentions Tryphena, Tryphosa, and Persis. Tryphena and Tryphosa may well have been twin sisters who served in the church. Their names mean delicate and dainty, respectively. This might have been part of their natural makeup, but it wasn't true when it came to ministry because they, along with Persis, Paul says, worked hard. It's the same word used in reference to Mary, copiazo, working to the point of weariness or exhaustion for the Lord in the church. In verse 13, he mentions the mother of Rufus. He describes Rufus as one chosen in the Lord. Now, in a certain sense, that's true of all believers. We are chosen in the Lord. We are elect to salvation. So Paul may be singling him out saying that Rufus is a choice man in the Lord. And that's how the New American Standard Bible translates Paul's words. That this man is a choice man in the Lord. He is a choice servant of the Lord. He is the cream of the crop. He stands out in a wonderful way. New Testament scholar Doug Moo writes, quote, since the gospel of Mark was probably written in Rome, and perhaps at about the same time as Romans, it is tempting to identify the Rufus of verse 13 with the Rufus whose father carried Jesus' cross to Golgotha in Mark 15, 21, end quote. That's an amazing thought that perhaps Simon of Cyrene was Rufus's father. Concerning his mother, Rufus's mother, Paul says, she has been a mother to me as well. Think about that. A godly mom, Rufus's mom, who was not only a, a good caretaker for her family, but also extended her motherly care and influence to other believers, including the Apostle Paul himself. Now I was thinking, how, how would have Paul thought of her as like being a mother to him as well? I mean, there were many believers who cared for Paul, but how was she like a mother to him? Well, I, I just kind of imagined that maybe, you know, uh, Paul has been working hard all day, making tents and, and, you know, ministering to people and sharing the gospel and preaching. And I could say, see Rufus's mother saying something like, Paul, you've been making tents and ministering all day. Have you even eaten yet today? Now get in here right now, sit down. I'm going to fix you something to eat. Or maybe as Rufus was headed out the door, she prepared an extra loaf for a sandwich and said, hey, give this to Brother Paul. Perhaps if he stayed with them, perhaps she, like a mom, would, would even clean and bandage his wounds. Maybe she washed his dirty clothes. We don't know, but whatever she did, Paul says, she was like a mother to me. And that meant the world to Paul. In verse 15, he mentions Julia, and Nereus's sister. There's no description given about these ladies, but they are mentioned by name and were obviously dear ones to Paul. Paul greets over two dozen believers by name 
in this passage, nearly half of which are women. Now, I've shared a couple of details about the men, and certainly more details could be shared, but I focus mainly on the women to highlight the vital role that they played in the first century church. They are described, along with the men, as fellow workers who worked hard for the Lord and for his church. Paul did not take these sisters in Christ for granted, and neither should we. On the very day that I was writing this part of my sermon, at another point during the day, I just scrolled through Facebook to catch any updates, and there was a birthday tribute that a young man wrote to his wife. Now, what's interesting about this couple is they were just little kids in the very first church that I pastored in Richmond, Virginia. I was actually associate pastor of student ministries at that church. And I don't think they were even old enough to be in junior high yet, but they were, were like elementary school. Uh, Dave's smiling over there, the coach of our Olympians. Uh, they, were, they would have been like in elementary school, and these kids grew up together, same youth group, and eventually their, their friendship blossomed into something more, and they eventually got married 10 years ago, and now they have a couple of elementary age school children of their own. And uh, this guy, this young man, was uh, posted a birthday tribute to his wife. And he said, and I quote, She's a tireless worker, an amazing wife, and the best mom our kids could ever dream of. Her willingness to enter into others' hurt with compassion and grace is unrivaled. Then he ends on a romantic note saying, She's pretty cute too. (laughs) Happy birthday, my love. End quote. And as I read this birthday tribute that this young man wrote to his wife, describing her as a tireless worker, filled with grace and compassion, the thought occurred to me, boy, that sounds an awfully lot like how Paul was describing many of the women in the church at Rome. And it was a reminder to me, and I hope it is to you, that just as women that were filled with grace and compassion that worked hard for the Lord were in the first century church and played a vital role, women still today are filled with grace and compassion who work tirelessly for the Lord and His people. And many of those women are sitting out in this room right now. We want to say to you, thank God, for godly, gracious, hardworking women like you. We don't often show just how much we appreciate your work in the Lord, but this passage reminds us of how vital women are to the work of the ministry, along with faithful men. Well, in addition to all the names in verses 1 to 16, eight more are mentioned in verses 21 to 23. At this point, Paul's getting ready to close his letter. And so these are men who are actually with Paul. They're not in Rome. They're actually with Paul as he's writing this letter to the church at Rome. And as we look at verses 21 to 23, I can see these men crowded around Paul as he's, he's dictating this letter and as Tertius is writing down Paul's words. It's like Paul has been giving all these greetings and Timothy interjects, well, say hi for me too. Okay, Timothy sends us greetings. And then Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater chime in. Well, wait, say hi for me too. So Paul says they extend their greetings as well. 
And then Gaius, Erastus, and Cordus do the same. And as you look at these men, we won't go into detail describing them, but you can simply uh, see by reading their names and um, uh, their occupation and where they appear elsewhere in the New Testament that these men come from all different walks of life. And yet here they are, huddled around Paul, greeting the church, because they too are fellow workers who love the Lord and love His church. There's one thing I think this passage suggests as we've read through all these names. Various characteristics step out, uh, ste- uh, yeah, appear to us that come forth out of this text. But I think if there's one thing that really sticks out, it's working. Working hard for the Lord and for His church out of love. I think it is safe to say that where there is much love, there is much labor. Where there is much love, there is much labor. And there's a beautiful irony in this, isn't there? That as we spend ourselves in Christian service to others, we would say working at times to the point of exhaustion, we are actually strengthened through that. We are strengthened in our relationships with one another. So as we spend ourselves in service to the Lord, to His church, we are actually strengthened by the Lord in our relationships with one another. And that's why I have as the transformative truth for chapter 16, our collaborative service for Christ strengthens our solidarity in Christ. And our unity in Christ, brothers and sisters, is is so important. It is so precious that we are to do everything we can with God's help to express that unity to promote that unity and protect and preserve that unity. And so Paul says in verse 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Why don't we do that now? Just greet, no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) That's not our custom, at least most of the cultures we come from. But it's important to note that Paul says greet one another with a holy kiss. It's not a sensual kiss. Back in the culture of of Paul's day, it was common for men to greet men and women to greet women with an affectionate uh, kiss on the cheek, on both cheeks actually, as, as a way of expressing their affection for one another. The customary greeting is still practiced in many cultures today, including Italian culture, as a sign of affection. In our culture, it might be more of a uh, hug or a handshake or in some cases, a fist bump. The point is, is that these appropriate physical displays of affection not only express the unity we have in Christ, but it's a tangible way that strengthens our unity in Christ. Christian unity must not only be expressed and promoted but it must also be protected and preserved. And so after greeting his co-laborers, Paul issues a caution to them in verses 17 to 19. Romans 16, 17 to 19. Paul says, I appeal to you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. 
and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the heart of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. We don't know who exactly these people were who were dividing the church with false doctrine, what kind of trouble they were causing. But one thing is clear. And Paul says it in verse 18. These people do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has just spent 16 verses greeting and celebrating those who do faithfully serve the Lord Christ in His church. But these people do not serve our Lord Christ. Why? Because they divide the church with false doctrine. By doing that, they are working against our Lord who died to redeem His church and to bring us together. And, and Paul says that there are two things that we are, as believers are to do with those, these false teachers who would divide the church by maligning the true gospel of Jesus Christ. First, he says, scope them out. Scope them out. Um, the ESV says, watch out in verse 17. But that actually translates the Greek word skopeo, from which we get our word scope, microscope, telescope. So I like to use the phrase, scope them out. That is, learn to identify those who cause divisions in the church by teaching things that are contrary to the truth of Scripture. What Jude calls the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Remember what Paul said to the Galatians? He said, if I or an, even an angel from heaven came and preached you a different gospel than the one that you have heard, let him be accursed. So this isn't talking about divisions that can occur in, in the church that we looked at earlier. Uh, lack of unity over um, petty preferences that we're sticking to or one being a stronger Christian or a weaker Christian. Uh, those divisions can do damage, but this is something of a far more serious nature. These are people that creep into the church and through flattery and deception seek to win a hearing and they end up dividing the church over false doctrine. Paul says, mark those who malign the gospel by their false teaching. Scope them out. And then secondly, stay away from them. Stay away from them. At the end of verse 17, we see the second admonition, which is avoid them. So scope them out, identify them, and then stay away from them, avoid them, steer clear of them. Now Paul, in verse 19, attests once again, as he did at the very beginning of the letter, that the church's obedience is well known, and that makes Paul very happy. But Paul wants them to continue on this path by sticking to what is right and staying away from what is wrong. So he says, stay away from them. Those who would divide the church through false doctrine. But then Paul is quick to express his confidence in the Lord after issuing this caution to the church. His confidence is in verses 21, 20 to 21. Paul wants to warn them, but he doesn't want to worry them. And so he follows his caution with an expression of confidence toward God. Look at verses 20 to 21. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. 
the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. This, in a sense, is, is a repeating of the benediction that Paul gave at the end of chapter 15, but with a little more oomph. Paul's, Paul's putting some mustard on this, as it were. He's, he's driving it home, saying, May the God of peace, that the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. What a great reminder that God is not only the peace giver, but he is also the Satan crusher. Paul's words point us back to Genesis 3.15 where the Lord God promised victory over Satan and his offspring. Genesis 3.15 is often referred to as the proto-evangelium. It is, literally means the first gospel. It is the first mention, the first mention of the good news in Scripture. And Paul also seems to be alluding to Psalm 110 verse 1 where David wrote, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord's arch enemy is Satan, whose very name means adversary, opponent, enemy. Satan and his minions, which includes false teachers, actively oppose God and his people, his church. But Paul assures us that victory is ours in Christ because he has already won the war against Satan by dying on the cross for our sins and rising victoriously from the grave. Jesus has conquered Satan, sin, and death on behalf of all who turn from their sin and trust in Christ alone to save them. I thought of that famous hymn, by Martin Luther, a mighty fortress is our God. And he says, I believe it's the third stanza, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. In his comments on Romans 16.20, New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner says, Remarkably, enemies are crushed under the feet of believers, not the feet of Jesus. Such a scenario indicates that the victory of the Christ is shared with his followers so that the triumph of the Christ is also their triumph. End quote. And that's precisely what Paul said back in Romans 8. Do you remember? In all these things, we are what? We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And therefore, it's no wonder that Paul says in verse 21, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Our victory over Satan, listen folks, is found in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. Grace is God's undeserved kindness toward repentant sinners through our Lord Jesus Christ who died and rose again so that we could be saved. Don't miss the significance of that three-word designation for God's Son. Lord Jesus 
Christ. He is the Lord. That is to say that He is in His very essence God. He is the sovereign God and He is our Lord. He is our God, our Master, our King who will reign forever and ever. His human name, Jesus, that second term, means literally the Lord saves. And that's what Jesus came to do. Remember what the angel told Joseph as he was betrothed to Mary? He said, you will call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. That is the mission that Jesus came to accomplish. And he was able to say to God the Father, I have accomplished the work you gave me to do. Mission accomplished. All who believe in Christ are forgiven of their sin, reconciled to God, and granted eternal life. Lord Jesus Christ. We've said it many times, Christ is not Jesus' last name. (laughs) Christ is His title. Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Old Testament Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed one. Jesus is God's anointed one who fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies regarding the Messiah. He is the chosen Savior who came to rescue sinners like us. He is the King of kings who is returning to earth to establish His kingdom forever and ever. Paul says His grace is with us now. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you or is with you. His grace is with us now, and brothers and sisters, the best is yet to come. That's the glory of the gospel. Throughout this letter, Paul has been expounding the gospel of God. That's what he referred to it as in the very first verse of the very first chapter. The gospel of God. That's what he's been expounding throughout the entire letter. And now as he comes to the close of the letter, he praises the God of the gospel. Paul's conclusion in verses 25 to 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul ends his letter with a doxology on a note of praise. Three things stand out as I read these verses. Number one, God strengthens his people through the gospel. God strengthens us through the gospel. In the very first chapter, Paul declared the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And the gospel, by God's power, continues to strengthen us every day of our lives. You feel worried or anxious? Hey, you've got the peace of God. The God of peace is with you. You're troubled with guilt over your sin? God grants full forgiveness to all who trust in His Son for salvation. You feel like you're a loser, like you can't overcome sin in your life? Hey, you are more than a conqueror 
through him who loved you. Go back and read through the gospel of God as revealed in the book of Romans, and you will find that you have everything that pertains to life and godliness because of our great and awesome gracious God. God strengthened us through the gospel. Number two, the gospel centers on Jesus Christ. Let us never forget that the gospel is the good news of the mighty work that God has done through His Son, Jesus Christ. All Scripture is a testimony to Christ, and Christ saves all who come to Him. And that's the third thing that sticks out, that the gospel is for all nations, people of every ethnicity. And that's why Christ commissioned His church to preach the gospel to the whole creation, to make disciples of all the nations, because the gospel is good news for everybody. One commentator writes, quote, to walk the Roman road, as some have called the gospel presentation in this letter, is not only to discover one's sins forgiven by the God of utter love and mercy, but also to learn that this lavish forgiveness was always intended to draw people of all sorts into a single family, end quote. The family of God. The family of God. What a mind-blowing, breathtaking reality. Brothers and sisters, that we should be called the children of God. The Bible says that is what we are. No wonder Paul ends on a note of praise saying, All glory to the only wise God through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. And to that we add our own hearty Amen. Let's pray. Great is thy faithfulness. O oh God, our Father, how great is Your grace to us through our Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave Himself for us. And how precious is the gift of Your Holy Spirit who indwells and empowers everyone who believes on the name of Christ. Triune God, we give you praise as we close out our study of this grand New Testament epistle. Help us, O God, to preach the gospel to ourselves every day and also to proclaim the good news to others that they might have the life that is found in Christ alone in whose name we pray. Amen.